Well, as Bob mentioned, uh, our text today is Psalm 22, and indeed it is uh, seen more clearly against the backdrop or the, the foreshadowing that it gives of, of Matthew 27, verses 35 to 50 that we just read a moment ago. There's an obvious strong correlation between the two, even though they're uh, very far apart chronologically. Uh, but we need to realize that in Acts chapter 2, Peter calls David a prophet. And in Hebrews 2 verse 12, there's a quotation of Psalm 22 verse 22, but it specifically says that it is Jesus who said it, not David. And beyond this, we'll find that Psalm 22 is full of metaphorical and hyperbolic language that, that really speaks about Jesus more than David. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about Psalm 22. He says, David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. And so follow along as I read from Psalm 22, a psalm of David, a psalm of Jesus. But first, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed give us eyes to see and ears to hear today. Speak to us through your word, which is living and active, and show us Jesus. Show us Jesus, for it is only Jesus who can save us through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Show us Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Here now, Psalm 22, this is the inspired word of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night... But I find no rest, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him yet you are he who took me from the womb you made me trust you at my mother's breasts on you was i cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my god be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open, their wide, their, open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. 
For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our god stands forever well that was a little bit longer text than we usually have but but it's an important text i think it obviously points us i think in light of what we've read before and what we know about jesus and his crucifixion it points us to our savior does it not it, it's pretty clear we we see jesus here i hope now, now, David had his own troubles, indeed, and so when he wrote these words, he was thinking about his own situation, even if the language he used was somewhat metaphorical, and we might not have had the same troubles as Jesus, and we might not have had the same troubles as David, but we've all faced troubles, have we not? And this psalm does a wonderful job of teaching us how we should face them, how we should come face-to-face with them. I think sometimes within the church we have this feeling that, that in order to be pious, in order to be righteous, that, that we must, in the face of troubles, just keep a, a strong upper lip and put a, a fake smile maybe on our face. And, and if we're going to go before God, it must always be in, in that mindset. We must act joyful, even if we do not have joy in our hearts. I'm reminded of the movie from I think it was probably the early 1990s, A Few Good Men. Perhaps you remember it. There's the famous scene where Jack Nicholson is on the witness stand and, and Tom Cruise is, is, is questioning him and he's trying to get him to break and he's pushing him and he's pushing him and he's pushing him. He says, I want the truth. And, and, and Jack Nicholson finally breaks. And what does he say? He says, you want the truth? You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> 
right? And I think that that's somehow how we think about God. We think that God can't handle the truth, that we have to pretend when we go before him, that we can't be honest with him. I assure you, brothers and sisters, that he can handle the truth. His shoulders are broad and his back is strong. And besides that, he knows the truth already. David was aware of this. David was certain of it. And we need to be aware as well because, first off, sometimes we feel forsaken. We've all been there, haven't we? Sometimes we feel forsaken. Sometimes we feel that God is just distant. He, he just doesn't seem to be there. He seems to have turned his back on us to be far off and he just seems to not be there. And our hearts cry out with David and with Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's likely that when Jesus proclaimed those words, it wasn't just those words that he was proclaiming. He, he either said or likely at least was alluding to the whole of this psalm. But I think even in those very opening words, those are very important for us to know that this is a, a right and holy way to come to God at times. If this is how we feel, we should express this to God. And we see how David continues. He says, why are you so far from saving me? He's questioning God. I, I don't understand, God. Why are you so far? Oh my God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer me. And by night, but I find no rest. He's saying, saying, I cry out all the time, during the day, during the night. I cry out, I cry out, and I cry out, but you feel so distant. Remember who David is. This is the same David who, who just a chapter later, right, and I don't think he wrote them in order. I think he's probably perhaps even already written. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And all that beautiful language of laying down in green pastures and, and beside still waters and feeling such a tender connection with the Lord. But he's not feeling that this day. And just as David was used to being close to God, just imagine how much more so this was true of Jesus. He who had eternally coexisted with the Father as God in perfect, unbroken fellowship for all of eternity past. And now he feels forsaken, as if his heavenly Father is distant. Sometimes it feels like this to us too, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like God is just ignoring us. We, we feel exhausted from it, as if we could get no rest. Yet we look to Jesus and we see that he cried out, feeling the same way. And God was at work there. He's crying out to God. He, he, he looks at his circumstances and describes his situation here. I'm, I'm a worm and not a man scorned by mankind, despised by people. He gives some examples, David does here. He says, all who, who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him, let, for, for he delights in him. This is, this is obviously mocking voices that he is, he is speaking of. And, and we saw in Matthew 27 how these are the exact same things that Jesus faced. Those passing by blaspheming him, wagging their heads, 
saying that he trusted in God. Let God deliver him now. David continues in verse 17, he says, I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. Again, we see something pointing forward to what actually happened with Jesus. And then the metaphorical language again in verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. The bulls of Bashan were a proverbial uh, were proverbial for, the, for their size. They were large. They, they were fed on lush vegetation of that region that's known today as the, the Golan Heights. It, it's uh, produced much meat and wheat and all, all, all these types of things that were, were, were kind of an indication of, of point, pointed towards strength and, and, and favor. So, so these strong bulls were surrounding me, he said, and, and they opened wide their mouths and uh, and are like a ravening and roaring lion, we read in verse 13. And that, that language of a, of a roaring lion uh, the, you know, was often used of referring to death. The lion's mouth was a, was a picture of death in that, in that age, in that time, in that language. And we, of course, remember the words of Scripture that Peter says in 1 Peter 5, where he warns us to be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary the devil prowls around like what like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour well david goes on here in verse 16 speaking of the dogs that encompass him and the evildoers that encircle him then says they have pierced my hand and my feet it's interesting uh we, we've talked in recent weeks actually haven't we about about the dogs that that encircle him these aren't you know you know, your, your, your pet dogs, your, your best friend, as it were, right? We're talking about wild dogs that were ravenous, uh, that, that roamed in packs and ate at garbage dumps and spread diseases and were very, very despised. And how that was a term that was often used to the Gentiles, the people who were against the people of God, the people who, who were seen as enemies of the people of God. And we need to remember in that the beauty of the gospel. Because, because what is it that God has done, Romans 5 tells us, while we were enemies, while, while we were like the dogs, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Our sins are an affront to God. They set us against him. We are enemies of God left to our own devices. We, we battle against him. We wage war against him. What he should do is annihilate us, right? He should completely defeat us. He should just wipe us away. That's what we deserve. That's, that's what you do to an enemy, right? But he does not do that. He instead shows us love and grace in Christ Jesus, who went to the cross and paid the penalty that we owed he absorbed the full wrath of God that we deserved through his crucifixion on the cross right the the psalm spoke of how they have pierced my hands and feet it's interesting to note the crucifixion didn't even exist when David wrote those words and yet they spoke forward to the crucifixion of Christ Jesus and in that crucifixion and in his resurrection, there is forgiveness for our sins. And there is joy for a new life that he promises us, that he gives to us. But David wasn't feeling this joy 
at this point was he? He says, I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. He's using this language of, of just, just feeling completely drained, completely devoid. Have you ever been there? I know you, I know you have. You've had just a terrible day, a hard day. Everything's against you, and you're just exhausted. And like your, your knees can hardly stay strong enough to hold, hold you up as you stand there, and you just feel like you just want to melt away, right? That's what he's saying. He's feeling there. It's the inner feelings of an anguished man just, just feeling like it's all gone. My strength is dried up, he says, like a potsherd. You know, a shard of pottery that's been broken. It's, it's dried, it's broken, it's good for nothing. Worthless. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay in the dust, lay me in the dust of death. That's a pretty brutal scenario that he is seeing himself in. So how do we respond when we're in such a scenario? How, how does he respond? How does Jesus respond? Well, this is what we need to do first. First, we need to cry out to God for help. We need to cry out for God's help. Not just crying out complaining, right? It's not just, God, you're doing a rotten job. No, it's God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Right? Conventional wisdom is that God helps those who help themselves. But biblical wisdom is that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who are lost and are without help. And so we look to God and, and like verse 11, we cry out, be not far from me. He is looking to, to the intensely intimate relationship that he has with God as a member of his people, just as just as. Little Emma was baptized here this morning and received the, the covenant sign of baptism upon her, marking her out as one of God's people, as a special person in that sense, brought into the covenant community and, and given special access to God, special blessings as a result. So too David knew himself to be such a person and cried out to God, be not far from me. Not because I deserve it, not because I have earned it, but rather on the basis of the relationship that I have with you, that you have ordained, that you have instituted, that you have created, that you have maintained, and all by your grace. Second thing we need to do is not just call out to God, but remember who God is and what he has already done. Remember the works of God, the covenant works of God. That's what he does here in verse 3 and following. Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. He says, essentially, you called out these people to be your people. You made promises to them. And you followed through on those promises. You delivered them just as you promised you would. And we need to remember those promises as well. Verse 9 and 10. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. 
On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. It's interesting here. We see the grace of God once again. The, the, the monergistic work of God. The sovereign grace of God. In this, right, he says, says you took me from the womb. I, I didn't do that, right? It wasn't my decision to be born. And you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. He's saying here that even, this, this is realized, this is, the word of scripture, the inspired word of God. And David says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that even when he was a little infant, he already trusted God. Not because he had figured things out. Not because he was you know, a super gifted child who, who at the age of six months had figured out the, the history of salvation and had figured the ordo salutis out and he had, he had you know, studied all the scriptures and memorized that all and, and had figured it all out and made a profession of faith and had walked the aisle and raised his hand with every head bowed. And, uh, no, no. He's saying that he trusted in God because God had caused him to trust in God. Because that's how, how it worked. Now you might say, say that, that there's no way a child, a little baby child, can trust in God. They lack the capability. They lack the necessary ability to trust in God on their own. And I would say, absolutely they lack it on their own. And so do you. And so do I. It is only through God's working in and through us that any of us can trust in God. It is only through his work, through his sovereign grace, that we might trust in God. And that's what he says he did. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God, he says. He says, you have been my God. I was marked out as yours from those earliest of days, trusting in those covenant promises of God even all the way back to Abraham, right? The promises that were for him and for his children and for his children's children. Remember the covenant promises of God and then finally seek his salvation, right? But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. Come quickly to my aid and see what he says to deliver him from. Deliver from the power of the dog that he had mentioned in verse 16, from the lion that he had mentioned in verse 13, and from the wild oxen, you know, those bulls back in verse 12. God is able to deliver him from all of these things, and he is in fact so confident in God's ability to do that, that, that it's interesting, notice the tense change in what he says here. He says, deliver me from the sword, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He is so sure of God's ability to save, so confident of it, he speaks of it as if it has already happened. He's still in the midst of his trial. He's still in the midst of his difficulty, but he's saying, you've saved me. It's a done deal. I am certain of it because I know you and you know me. I am committed to you because by your grace you've committed yourself to me. I hold on to you, but even if I let go, you will not let go of me. He is trusting in this and he is seeking the salvation that only God can provide. And one other thing we need to remember is that when we are in a trial, it's not just about me, right? 
If you are facing trials, it's not necessarily all about you. God is doing something bigger in the midst of your trials than just dealing with you. There are all kinds of things he might be teaching you, and, and that might be a primary focus of his in the midst of it, but there is something bigger and larger and more magnificent involved in all of that. Consider the cross. We've said this before, but consider, consider the cross where Jesus is hanging on the cross and his mother Mary is seeing what is going on and, and surely she is, she is weeping and crying and screaming out as her little baby boy, a little baby boy that she had one day carried in her womb, that she had one day fed at her breast. And now this little baby that she has loved has grown up to become a man, but he is stretched wide on this cross pierced with nails, bleeding, gasping for air, dying as he is tortured to death. Surely Mary is thinking in the midst of this scenario, my God, what are you doing? How can any good possibly come from this? This is the most horrible thing ever, and she was right. It is the most horrible thing ever because it was the innocent son of God who was being crucified and tortured on that cross. He was completely just, completely righteous, and so his death was completely unjust and completely unrighteous. And yet even through that worst of events ever, God was at work. He was at work in a way she couldn't have understood. He was at work saving her. This worst of events was actually the best of events. Because if Jesus does not die on that cross, then we are all lost in our sins. And so, finally, we need to remember the end goal of it all. The end goal of it all is gospel proclamation. The proclamation of the good news. The proclaiming of the goodness of God. That's what he turns to in verse 22 and following. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. He is still in the midst of his trials as he's saying this. And he says, I'm not going to wait to be saved. I know that God will save me. And so I'm going to start praising him even now. You who fear the Lord, praise him, he says. I'm not just going to praise him myself. I'm going to tell others to praise him as well all you offspring of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him all you offspring of Israel all of you covenant children all of you people of God look not to your circumstances he says but look instead to your savior know that you are loved know that you will be delivered know that you can trust in him for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him but he has heard when he cried to him in and through Christ Jesus God hears the cries of his people he is our great advocate before the Father. He is at the right hand of God pleading for us even now, this very moment, and his pleading will not go unheard. Praise him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Verse 25 reads, Five vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you will be delivered from affliction? You should believe that. 
For he who is faithful and true has promised it. And all the ends of the earth, verse 27 tells us, shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. This goes all the way back to Abraham, right? The promise in Genesis 12 when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and sent him on his way to follow him. He said, I will bless those who bless you and he who dishonors you I will curse and in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a peculiar people, a peculiar family that I am blessing, but I am doing it not so that it might terminate on them, but that in them all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, says to his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That one day, in Revelation 5 we read, that they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, Christ Jesus, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. That's all of us, by the way. Each and every one of us will die. And each and every one of us will bow before Jesus. Posterity shall serve him, David writes. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. David's still saying this in the midst of his trial, but that does not stop him from worshiping. And so let us worship as well. Even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of our agony, even in the midst of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You seem so far off from me. Let us continue to worship, confident that we have a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for us, he who on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we ultimately would not have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? but ultimately could know him as our Father and our God who loves us. Dear child of God, you are not forsaken. You are beloved. Look to Jesus and know that this is true. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you for your great gift on our behalf. We thank you that you have lived the righteous life that we should have lived, that you have died the atoning death that we should have died, that you were forsaken by God so we need not be forsaken no matter how we feel. And that even right now, you plead for us strongly and perfectly, our great high priest, our 
names graven on your hands, our names written on your heart. Help us to be confident that with you as our high priest, with you as our savior, with you as our elder brother, that there is none who could separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.